Hi, I'm Donna Lauren. And I'm Dr. Adam Jirachi. And you are listening to Love's a Secret Weapon podcast. Yes, From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. William Morris Agency contacted my mother and told her I was to be introduced as the Dr. Pepper Girl in Dallas at a National Bottlers Convention. It was to be November 22, 1963 shortly after my brother Alan's 14th birthday. Dr. Pepper generously included my entire family to attend, which meant we all received airline tickets and hotel rooms. For my brothers, who were used to camping trips, this is a very big deal. A few pages in my diary show that leading up to this next big event, the total focus was preparing for this major step in my career. We arrived in Dallas knowing that at the same time of my debut, there was going to be a visit from my idol, John F. Kennedy, and his wife, Jackie. The day of the convention, November 22nd, I was preparing myself for an early performance in front of the 2,000 people who were attending this auspicious occasion. Dr. Pepper wasn't the only soft drink in Dallas celebrating. Pepsi and 7-Up were also in town for their national bottling conventions. This is when Joan Crawford had inherited ownership of Pepsi after her husband, the CEO, had passed away. She was in town at her own event in Dallas. It was nearing one o'clock when I was to appear downstairs in the ballroom. I had the TV on while my mother helped me ready myself. My brothers and dad were downstairs waving to the President of America. The first shot rang out as I stood shocked and devastated. I began to cry, telling my mother that the President was just shot. Only minutes before I told her, every 20 years, a President dies in office. I learned that at school. My mother was non-reactive to the news and answered the ringing telephone. Quote, Mr. Parker, she said. I knew that was the CEO of Dr. Pepper, and she passed the phone to me. Donna, Mr. Parker lamented, no one is indispensable, dear. Now get yourself down here. There are 2,000 people waiting to meet you. Unquote. He never acknowledged President Kennedy's death or my feelings toward the tragedy, nor did my mother. Only my position as being responsible for my family and the company mattered. The chilling effect this had on me has left a stain on my heart and brain. Bewildered, I composed myself and thought, what in the world can I sing in the moment of time that could possibly represent integrity? I thought of a hymn called I Believe and Lonesome Road, which I would accompany myself with on piano. Completely awestruck, I was led into the ballroom to witness a full room of Dr. Pepper bottling plant owners watching outtakes of my commercials. They had been informed of President Kennedy's assassination. I thought, how can we behave like business as usual after such a life-changing event? There was a shock factor in a time like this, but we all chose to save our own asses. I chose to prioritize my responsibility to my family and not to freak out to my most genuine and heartfelt feelings that such a reaction was immoral and unjust. Instead, I witnessed all these adults snickering at the very scene of when I was filming the horseback riding commercial and I was stuck behind the saddle. How can I make a difference? I knew I must call on my higher self to bring lightness into the lives of these folks. 
I wanted to bring joy to everyone's heart and get comfort for myself simultaneously. I mounted the stage and waved to my brother Alan to join me. He tapped a rhythm on the top of the piano while I sang with all my heart and soul in this somber moment. I felt like I was the only one in the room that cared about our president getting killed. Later that evening, I was escorted to the Pepsi Ball where I was stunned to see more adults celebrating their own tiny triumphs, including Joan Crawford wearing a full-length black sequin gown. I was constantly reminded by my parents to behave like business as usual. As a teenager during his time in office, what did President Kennedy represent for you? Oh, he was someone that finally, as a young person, Mm. I could relate to. He was um, so, um, he was someone that you wanted to listen to. You know, he was unique. He was someone that you you thought was in this place in his life where he didn't really have to you know kind of integrate himself mm-hmm. into the world he could have just kind of isolated himself and lived a very very happy mm-hmm. comfortable mm-hmm. life i mean we know that you know his father's ambitions for first his brother yeah. and brother joe mm-hmm. and and then of course for him you know, had a lot of influence, but he was essentially a man with a heart. Mm. And that's what you felt. You felt that he cared, genuinely cared. And, and that he, you know, unlike, let's say Eisenhower, Mm. that, you know, I kind of, you know, became aware of politics through, you know, he was like a grandfather, but he was a general. And, it was hard for me to relate, you know, <laughs> uh, even though I remember in grammar school, at least, oh gosh, I think it was the second grade. There was, there was an election and I was like voting, you know, we voted in our classroom, <laughs> even though we were like six or seven years mm-hmm. old, you know, there, there was a patriotism that was, um, well, here's a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, my Swedish friends, invited me for dinner one time at their long dinner table. They must have had, I don't know, more mm. than a dozen people seated around this long table. Mm. And most of them were Swedish. And they started singing countrymen songs, you know, because their country meant something yeah. to them. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and you see that it, with English uh, the English have that same kind of patriotism for their country. The yeah. French have it for their country and absolutely, and, and on and on. And in this country, as mm. I was growing up, I had the same feeling. You know, when I pledged allegiance to the flag, I, I truly felt something, you know, for yeah. the country I was living in. And um, so that's, that when a young person that I could relate to who was mm-hmm. so unique mm-hmm. um, seemed like everything that came through his his mouth, you know, not only came through from his heart, but came mm. through a, an incredible education. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, you, you just when you see him and you hear him and, and you know, those speeches that he that he um gave at that time they they just stand up because i think besides you know um perhaps and i'm not as familiar with with eisenhower but as you said he was a five-star general and and you know obviously very um uh successful in in that arena but in the case of kennedy you know i I think what he spoke to was very much this humanity and that doesn't change and the same with his brother bobby they those those speeches because they, they they spoke to humanity and the human condition um they inspire people. Yeah, exactly. You inspire me to read um, his inauguration speech. Fantastic. It goes like this. And so 
My fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. And I would add mankind and all life on planet Earth. But yes, so inspiring, so unforgettable, and so relevant. Just hearing that, I... I think it, it all, particularly a moment in time for those of you who were coming of age in that beginning of the 60s, which we speak so much about in this, in this podcast because so, so much of what we speak about happened in that, that important time. But just someone like him to be coming um, into office right at the beginning of that decade, you know, I think really represented something for so many people, you know, people like you who were just so taken, um, you know, with him. And, and um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of hard to think of, you know, a, a president, you know, subsequently that inspired that kind of um, reaction from people. I know much later on, um, some people would say President Obama, but, you know, of, of the time, um, you know, Kennedy, that was just the beginning of this, of this, you know, era that, as we know from your, your story of being in Dallas was, was cut short very, very quickly. Um, you know, so I think when you talk about being in Dallas and it was just, um, not coincidental, but it was a, it was, it just turned out that way that you were about to be introduced in Dallas at a national bottlers convention, um, uh, which was a big, big, big event. Um, you know, not only was Dr. Pepper there, but Coke was there, Pepsi was there, um, 7-Up, um, you know, all the big ones. You know, it was a really big deal, um, you know, for you. So it must have been kind of exciting when when you also found out that President Kennedy was going to be there at the same time. Yes, well, my focus mm. was obviously, you know, <laughs> finally, 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 you know, I could fulfill my family's mm-hmm. dream or my parents dream and um and you know be successful and provide mm-hmm. for them so you know the idea that president kennedy and his wife jacqueline would be in dallas at the same time was a little bit more mm-hmm. in the background mm-hmm. but you know i remember in school and of course you know by this time i had to kind of drop out and Um, But while I was still in school, I remember one of my teachers, probably a history teacher, saying, every 20 years, a president Mm -hmm. dies in Mm -hmm. office. So as I was, I'll give Mm -hmm. you a time zone. It was around, you know, a little after lunch, maybe around one o'clock in the afternoon. And there were 2,000 bottlers um, that owned franchises Mm -hmm. all over the country uh, that were assembled in a ballroom downstairs in the Mm -hmm. Dealey Plaza, which was on the corner of where the motorcade was driving. So as I'm getting dressed and literally getting dressed to go downstairs Mm -hmm. and be presented as, you know, their new uh, (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Pepper you know, advertising Mm, campaign mm. um, that uh, I turned on the television Mm. while I was getting dressed and there was the motorcade with President Kennedy and Jacqueline and and the Mm. Governor Connolly driving right by the hotel I Mm. was in. And, uh, and I, you know, I'm putting my dress on and my mother's getting, you know, (laughs) zipping me up and whatever. And, you know, and, and I see, I see the car mm. turn the corner where mm. I'm at. And suddenly the shots ring out. I have to ask you, but mm. Adam, my dear doctor, <laughs> have you ever witnessed a murder? And that's the thing, isn't it, that I was trying to think about this um, when we were talking about this, that I... I can't imagine anything more. And I, you know, I've seen that footage since and, and so on, but I can't imagine anything more brutal and just shocking than watching the president get 
shot, get killed, you know. It's, um, mm. I mean, we didn't know, mm. you know, no one knew, yeah. of course, right away. But the impact of the mm. event was enough to trigger a tremendous surge of fear yeah. in me. And I was collapsing. Yeah. You know, here I'm supposed to go downstairs and and entertain these 2,000 people who, you know, and the the CEO yeah. and, and all of the um, administrators for the headquarters of Dr. Mm. Pepper that were, you know, based in, in Dallas. And, um, you know, I'm 16 yeah. years old. Yeah. and. And, uh, you know, and they're, they're counting on me like my mother and father mm. are counting on me. They're, they're all, they all kind of became, you know, who my mother and father represented to me in yeah, my life. Yeah, because mm. When the phone mm. rings and my mother picks up the phone and um, I hear her kind of mumbling and telling someone that, uh, you know, well, she's upset. And she you know, is kind of instructed to hand the phone yeah, to me. Yeah, and the, and the person on the phone was the Dr. Pepper CEO, Westby Parker, um, who yep. who then, what, what happened then when, when, you, when you got the phone and spoke to him? Yeah, well, you know, I was crying and, yeah. he, and he, he kind of, um, he kind of uh, shook me up because he just said, he didn't say anything about, I understand how you feel. He didn't show any empathy. Mm, mm. He didn't show any compassion. He went directly into, quote, mm. no one is indispensable, dear, unquote. Mm. And in that moment, it meant to me, the president is not yeah. indispensable. Yeah. And... I am not indispensable. It sounds, and it's 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 interesting you say that because I'd never quite thought of it that way. I, when you told me this story many years ago, it was kind of that callousness of, you know, the show's going on. No one's indispensable. Kennedy is not indispensable. But now that you say that, it was a very clear message, wasn't it? That if if you didn't play ball um, and do what you were responsible for doing, um, you're not indispensable either. You know, you've just become this Dr. Pepper girl, but let's, let's remember this. I'd actually never, never thought about that before. And there's an irony because many, many years later, mm. I happened to, um, run into Mr. Parker's yeah, granddaughter yeah. and I told her what her grandfather said mm. to me on that day. And she said, sounds just like him. Yep. Yeah. So, <laughs> so not that that's comforting for either one, yeah, you know, for her for or sure. myself, but, but, um, you know, he was, you know, captaining the ship mm. and had to keep it running on course. And, um, the president had not been announced, you know, pronounced dead at that yeah. moment yeah. because, the incident had just occurred. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, and so I hung up and took full responsibility. Mm. It's like my nervous system, you know, it's like all the hundreds of nerves in your in your spine and the network sending all these messages to your brain and your heart and mm. everything else and your stomach. And um, it just said, you know, you better get it together. And so I did. And I'm wondering when you say that, that you had to get it together very quickly and go down. How, how long was it before uh, between having that phone call and then going down to the ball, ballroom? Do you remember? It was, it was minutes. Yeah. That's, that I just find, you know, staggering that when someone's so young, you know, you find out that the president has been shot, which I mean, is, is to wrap your head around that is, is just insane as it is. But then to have these authority figures um, you know, the Dr. Pepper CEO tell you no one's indispensable. Your mother, I guess, being complicit in that, um, you know, she she knew what was expected and what she wanted you to do. What does that do when the so-called authority figures around you? And I know we've spoken about this multiple times, but when they when they they're telling you that 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 you know no one is of of value or no one's indispensable, um, you know, in whatever moment it is, you know, how, how do you wrap your head around that? 
Well, in the moment, you know, as a young woman, mm. um, I um, I knew that from the very get-go of my life that, you know, my journey was about cooperating. Mm. And, um, and so that's where I, you know, chose to go. And I, you know, my mother didn't show any compassion for mm. me either. You know, she you know, she didn't put her arm around me. She didn't, you know, she didn't even say, Oh my God, about the president. She was standing there too. She didn't react. Yeah. You know, she was just worried that I was too upset to perform. Yeah, absolutely. And so I was quite used to her behavior, but this is the most extreme situation. Just to not have that reaction because the laser focus was on what what you had to do down in that ballroom and be introduced and, you know, in, in order to start your contract with Dr. Pepper. Again, just just amazing that, um, you know, I get and I understand, you know, uh, Mr. Parker or and so on or even your mother to some extent, you know, being concerned about what needed to be done. Um, you know, I understand that that kicks in sometimes when when a tragedy happens and someone's in charge, they, they have to sort of put aside any, any you know, personal feeling. But just to be so, um, you know, like you said, to not be able to show that empathy for the moment, that acknowledgement for the moment, to to do that, even even if the ultimate goal is you're still going to do this, um, you know, to be able to comfort and to be able to show that empathy is, is just really shocking. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I, I, I didn't know exactly you know, the psychology at the time, Mm. but, you know, I guess narcissism is running rampant, Mm. you know, and my parents um, had probably a magnetism toward that energy. Mm. Mm. And um, so, you know, at that moment, my mother and the CEO, Mm you know, we're, we're, um, relating, you know, in a narcissistic way, uh, you know, for their own, for their own benefit, you know, not thinking about, you know, the big picture, not thinking about me, not even thinking about what had just occurred. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And, and becoming almost co-conspirators to, you know, get you to do, what you needed to do because then as you said shortly after you're led down to the to the ballroom not knowing because as you said no one really knew at that time whether president kennedy was alive or or not so what happens when you and there hmm. well there is a numbing you know yeah there is a numbing there is a tuning out that also happens you know um i i used to do that unconsciously mm. you know with my with my dad um when i didn't want to listen yeah (laughs) and i don't remember leaving the hotel room getting in the elevator going down seeing anyone i only remember leaving that space dressed and ready Mm. and thinking about my god i i have to sing Mm. i have to Mm. sing now and i have to go on a stage and play piano for myself yeah and introduce myself to the these two thousand people plus all the administrators of Dr. Pepper. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the next thing I knew, the doors were opening to this ballroom, mm. and I heard chuckling. Mm. I heard these, the, you know, audience, mm. the bottlers, um, chuckling. And then the next thing I did was look up at a screen that was hanging by the stage mm. showing my commercial mm. Mm. and because they were there they were there to see the new ad campaign yeah yeah and you know that so what i walked into was seeing the outtake of the horseback riding commercial when i was trying to get up on the horse that was too tall for me mm. And slide from the back of it into the saddle, which was quite awkward. Yeah. It took a lot of effort. Yeah. And they were chuckling over that. It's just amazing to think with with what had just happened and 
and they would have had to have known about it. But if, you know, you were right in the you know epicenter of where this was going on. That again, that's just put to one side, and not only are they you know focusing on the ad campaign, but they they're watching outtakes of a funny scene where you weren't able to get on a, a horse during one of the Dr Pepper commercials, and and everything is just forgotten. Um, amazing. I'm just I'm you know really just shocked by it. Yeah, and and it just shows you, you know, it, cultures, you know, that have subcultures, you know, that have sustained, you know, for way too long, mm. that are kind of um, running their course because it didn't work then, mm. and it doesn't work now. So you know, the the philosophy of being disingenuine or, or, you know, just being, um, how, how do you say dis uncompassionate? Yeah. Yeah. Or not compassionate. Yes. Yeah. It, you know, is, is, um, is, is actually waking up all over the planet because, you know, because of the situation we're in with mm. the coronavirus and our economies and, you know, and, um, and the the lack of compassion from too many leaders yeah. for yeah. not just for humans but for all life on this planet. So you know, exploitation is going to be a thing of the past. You know, um, there are too many people like you and I, and you know, and I'm not patting myself on the back, or <laughs> I'm just saying there's too, there's many more people with a heart. Yeah, you know? yeah. Been asked this a lot um, because, as you know, I, I research empathy and compassion and, and related processes. And people have asked me recently where they've just seen this complete lack of empathy or compassion. And you know, is it something that people are just born with, or is it something that you you learn and you're taught? And I think it's a combination of, of both. Um, you know, I think uh, you know some people, hopefully many people, you know, are born with something so that when they are exposed to the distress of other people, um, people, you know, uh, who are suffering in the world at the moment, given all that's happening on a global scale, they can't not, that they can't but help empathise and feel this real pang of, of that um, experience of that other person. But I think, you know, well, for, mm, mm. well I was going to say, I mean, uh, to see yourself as the centre of the universe, and of course, you know, humans are the only ones to have an ego mm. and, um, you know, all other life on planet earth functions without it and yeah. they function on instinct. And, um, and I think that, you know, the ego can serve its purpose for safety, per you know, safety mm. and, mm. and to make, um, good, you know, good decisions, um, Based on what your heart tells you, not mm. just what your mind tells you, not mm. just what your gut tells you. You know, it's like, it, I think possibly the psychology studies that you might be doing in the future mm. might be separating them out and realizing that how, you know, how the mind actually kind of becomes a, a kind of a, a betrayal you know, to your, your heart, if you don't include your heart mm, mm. and, you know, and, and maybe if you're making gut decisions, you know, some people do that, but it, it kind of ends up in uh, aggression. And I think that's so true that when we think that say people are born with some innate ability to empathize, which I would argue would, you know, would be the case. But like you said, whether it's the ego, there's something else there that, kind of short circuits that ability to do it when when people are in the moment because something is overriding it and you know if we speak about ego um you know and i know we've spoken about Eckhart Tolle and, and talking about that idea of ego versus what's um you know what's beyond the ego um whatever you want to call you know that um you know this whole idea and in psychology they talk about this a lot that i think we get so enmeshed with our our thoughts and we treat our thoughts as who we are and 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 our, our thoughts is always being true and so on, but there is a person beyond um, what your what those thoughts are, and in many cases those those egotist sort of thoughts. Um, there's there's someone within us who's able to 
look beyond those and see those for what they are and realize that we are not our thoughts and you know we we shouldn't be operating at that that point of ego yeah um, i you know i've i've heard so much about the heart you know kind of sending a message to the the mind and mm. um and sending a message throughout your entire system um so that the thoughts actually become a co-creator, you know, with spirit. So basically what you're doing is you, you know, here we are just this tiny little grain of sand, maybe even more minuscule than that. And connecting to the universe, this vast, vast, vast source of energy. And, um, and there's an inter- interesting equality in that relationship you know, mm. the universe doesn't want to dominate us and, and, you know, and man, man's ego, uh, but man's distorted ego, mm. you know, started cutting down ancient trees 150 years ago, 4,000 year old trees mm. for, you know, 150 years ago. And you see the decline through the industrial revolution, you know, and then the wars and yeah. the weaponry and mm. the use of poisons, you know, I was absolutely devastated ah, to know. I was watching a, a documentary on uh, Woody Harrelson was narrating, mm. and it was about healthy soil and how healthy soil sequesters carbon. And, you know, the situation that we're in is, you know, we've got this thick ozone layer. And I mean, this is in this documentary. It's called Kiss the Ground, narrated Mm. by Woody Harrelson. And he talks about the poison gas that was used for, you know, in the Holocaust to kill millions Mm. of people. But but it came to America and it was called pesticides. Mm. Mm. And those and that poison started to be used uh, in our farming in our agriculture and and it didn't take long before the ground started getting poisoned and then the ground water yeah. started getting yeah. poisoned and the carbon that the soil sequesters was not able to be absorbed by this unhealthy soil and of course you know not to leave our listeners with this you know kind of defeatist attitude yeah because there is a solution there are scientists and farmers all over the world now going back to the basics and creating healthy soil and using tools not plows but using devices to deposit seeds that doesn't disturb the ground Mm. as much and the ground is flourishing and is growing beautiful uh, varieties of grasses that cattle and other livestock, even chickens and bees, can meander on. And, um, and all of that healthy environment sequesters. It draws down the carbon that's sitting in the ozone layer. And they're predicting, well, when you watch this documentary, if there's enough mm-hmm. of this put into action that the soil will do more to benefit humankind all life on planet earth and Mm. help to reverse climate change than even changing fossil fuel but it all matters and that's the thing isn't it and i'm I'm glad you talk about this this hope because i was just going to say when you think about what we've managed to do in 100, 150 years, I think the ozone layer, in terms of us being aware of it, we were only aware of it from the beginning of the 20th century, I think, is when it was so-called discovered. And by the 70s, you know, we already knew what was happening, that it was being depleted. I mean, I remember, you know, in the 80s, you know, the, the kind of real push for us to sort of change things. And in the 30 years, you know, since then, that hasn't been the case. So to hear, you know, the possibility for what what could reverse what we've managed to do in that in that time you know the industrial revolution as you speak about and so on is is actually really hopeful i think at a time when so many of us don't have a lot of hope um you know around a whole range of things and i'll i'll get a little esoteric getting back to kennedy mm, and mm. you know 
getting back to all the great minds that have ever been on planet Earth, mm. all the great quote unquote thinkers, all the mm. great inventors, all the great artists, all the great lovers, men and women, <laughs> everyone that comes in with a soul that is a is you know a self loving soul, and maybe has the ability to overcome obstacles. Mm. Mm. Put them all together; their spirits are still alive. And you know, when you think about creation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and what's happening now, there's a force and there's a time for everything. And this is definitely the time. So mm-hmm. I would say that even a soul such as JFK, his brother, Martin, any of the great thinkers, yeah. go back to Da Vinci, go back to the Greeks, anyone, go back to, you know, a mother, a, a, you know, a loving mother, a unconditionally loving mother, an unconditionally loving father, unconditionally loving people <laughs> who, you know, who live their lives without cruelty and, um, and feel in harmony with nature. So, mm-hmm. you know, someone that takes the time to acknowledge a tree, <laughs> you know, um, there's a great organization, you know, I donated to called Eight Billion Trees, you know. Um, what a what an ambitious endeavor. I mean, I know there's another one to plant one trillion trees. And anywhere there's, you know, vacant land from forestry, mm. from burning, from any kind of devastation in Brazil, all over the world, you know. I just, I just discovered that, um, oh gosh, what country is it? Wait a minute. It's in Eastern Europe. Um, a country that's very mountainous and, and has the ability to absorb so much greenhouse gases because it's undisturbed and Mm -hmm. it has Mm -hmm. not been tampered with, with industry or drilling. There's threat of it, you know, um, but at any rate, you know, a spirit such as JFK that, you know, had his own human dilemmas, had his own yeah. human frailties, as we all do. And, and I want to use a, a, a beautiful <laughs> kind of a you know, term. <laughs> that uh, somebody I've been following says, mm. he says, you're flossom. Oh, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to need you to break this down for me. <laughs> so we're all flawed, <laughs> but we're all awesome. So we're flossom. <laughs> <laughs> I should have realized that that was, that was more apparent than I so, thought. So, you know, <laughs> it's like we all, we all have our frailties and, and, yeah. you know, who are we to judge, you know, anyone really if we don't want to be judged and you know it's it's been very circumstantial that throughout our lives you know until this moment that Mm -hmm. judgment has just been a way of life Mm -hmm. and judgment you know has created a lot of division so when you talk about the kennedys uh those Mm -hmm. those two brothers I had the occasion to actually um, shake hands with Robert Kennedy's son, Robert Jr. He was advocating uh, for a Virginia coal mining town to stop the the mining and actually Mm. stop dynamiting a mountain because it was Mm. causing so Mm. much cancer in that area. Yeah. And uh, he made a, a film about it, and he, he showed up to represent it. And, yeah. you know, to be in the presence of someone from that family was really special. Mm. Yeah, and, and that's kind of what I guess I wanted to, to bring up, because if someone, you know, myself who did not grow up during the Kennedy era, 
what I was, I mean, I was, you know, really related or resonated or whatever we want to call it with a lot of his features and, and a lot of the stuff you heard, but I, I never just realized as a man himself, how charismatic he was. Um, years ago, uh, there was a retrospective here in Adelaide on a DA Penny Baker, who's the, the very esteemed editor. And he had worked on a film in the, in 1960 called primary. And it's, um, it's basically following around JFK and Hubert Humphrey during the West, uh, West Wisconsin primary election. Um, and it's from a, from an artistic point of view, it's a real pioneer because they were using mobile cameras. They were using sound equipment that was very light, which allowed the, um, the filmmakers to be up close and personal, what we expect today. Um, but obviously what wasn't happening, you know, there where there was that real, I, I guess, a distance from whoever you were filming or whoever story you were telling. But then they sort of changed that with this, um, with this documentary. And I remember going to see a, a showing of it because they were having this retrospective and Penny Baker was going to come and, and do a Q&A and so on. And so I went with my friend Ryan to go see this film. And I was just struck for the first time, I guess, when you saw him so up close and personal, how he just radiated, um, you know, that charisma, that humanity. I, I could just see how as, as much as I'm sure Hubert Humphrey was a, a very you know nice man and good politician and so on, he just couldn't mm -hmm. compete with that because it was just coming off the mm -hmm. screen. And, you know, I guess I hadn't really uh, correlated this, but I think it goes back to light workers again. I think it mm, really does mm. come in, you know, it's like, <laughs> how much wattage do you have? You know, well, mm, I know the mm. first time I saw you, I could see you had, wow, you could <laughs> light up a city. You really could. <laughs> and, you know, Thank I you. mean, so many people have that in them that, you know, you see mm. them lowering their heads and not letting you see their eyes because there's so much power underneath yeah. it all yeah and it, that's what's changing now that is i mean mm. there was a revolution in 1960 you know when a when a religious dispute you know electing a catholic for the first time and a yeah. young man yeah. you know with red mm. with a mop of red hair and a funny <laughs> bostonian accent you know, mm, just mm. anything that could be called different, you know, that yeah. would make you feel like, ooh, you know, they're different yeah. from me. Wait mm. a minute. They're not going to be able to represent me. Yeah. But getting yeah. to, you know, getting to that energy that you come in with, that light working energy. And how ironic or how, I don't know, beyond ironic it is. When so many of these people's lives are stilled at such a young age and, you know, at, mm -hmm. at a peak of, of kind of an iconic moment where they are indelible in your mind. And yeah. I had an occasion uh, when I moved to the Palm Springs area to, um, mm. to perform one night. Uh, with friends and mm. and I also had a few friends in the audience so <laughs> it was funny um, I decided to include Lonesome Road which yeah, I was, sang yeah. at that you moment speak. you know at the convention uh, on that yeah. day <laughs> in Dallas um, mm. and I just decided to do it uh, on this occasion mm. it just felt right and I shared the story and there yeah. were people in the audience that started popping up and saying, I know where I was Absolutely. because they never forgot it. It was indelible. Yeah. And, and the feeling, the, mm. it was so stunning. Yeah. 
know, I can imagine, of course, it's on television, so it was available for everyone to experience. Not like when Lincoln got shot in the Ford Theater, you know, that had more like a two-dimensional quality to it, even though it was There was a distance to it. So, you know, you had to have a, a really special feeling towards Lincoln or anyone else that you cared about. Mm. Roosevelt. Roosevelt used his his um, his uh, what do you, what did they call his radio um, fireside chat? Yes. He used That's his right. fireside yes. chats yes. to um, create that relationship one on one, which when you know doesn't you don't have to be excuse me I don't mean to use poor English but <laughs> you don't you don't have to be a celebrity you don't have to be a politician. You know, you, it doesn't yeah. matter whomever makes you think that they're listening to you and right then mm. and there it's that relationship between just even in a fleeting moment you know mm. it, it mm. leaves you with this incredible feeling that someone has touched your heart someone has made you feel whole someone has connected like all the dots you know You are in joy in that moment and maybe for a much longer moment. Um, And that's what life is for. That's I'm, I can almost guarantee that, you know, the moment of conception under whatever circumstance, you know, is, is, Mm. is at least a moment of joy. And that's when you talk about, you know, um, Kennedy and, and other people and that ability that people felt that they were being listened to or they were being heard or here was someone, you know, who got it. And I think when you were talking about those people that came up to you and said, I remember where I was, I imagine anyone of our listeners who who was around at that time is probably going to have the same reaction to hearing a lot of this because I, I, I think so many people talk about that, um, you know, besides the brutality of what had happened, besides the fact that, that this was something where the the vision could be seen, um, you know, as opposed to that distance. You know, there was something else about Kennedy, as we've spoken about, I think, that that got to the heart of people. And so I kind of wonder, you know, in that moment when you had to go and perform and, and be introduced, you know, you were probably thinking, and I think you said this, you know, what could I do in this moment? What can I do even though you were being told what to do and you were being disempowered and you still chose to sing two songs which reflected how you felt at that moment. And one of them was Lonesome Road, as you said, and the other one I was... Believe. I also remember playing ebb tide on the piano. I knew how to play ebb tide. Mm. And so that's what mm. I did. And, and, you know, my whole family was flown to Dallas for that occasion. So my 14 mm. year old brother, um, Alan, you know, who was a, a drummer, yeah. uh, came up and kind of tapped yeah. on the piano a little bit with me. But, uh, you know, I recall just as I recalled uh, when I was about five years old and my mother had to bribe mm. me to sing in front of all of mm. those uh, patients that were veterans and hooked up. and yeah, yeah, in the veterans hospital. As soon yeah. as I started singing, all my fears disappeared. And in mm. this moment, I looked out and I saw all those 2,000 faces. It was not... Yeah. Um, it was a ballroom, so it wasn't like professionally lit where sometimes you can't see an audience. I saw everyone all yeah. the way to the back row, mm. and they were all paying attention to me. You know, I was going to be their golden ticket. Yeah, <laughs> the great hope. And thank goodness I <laughs> delivered. But 
But in that moment, what mm. I did deliver is love. It is mm. always the secret weapon. Unknowingly, unconsciously, subconsciously, it is in that moment when you exchange your love with anyone, anyone, and all those people knew in that moment that they could trust me. They all looked at me like, here's this you know, young woman, 16, they're all, mm-hmm. you know, my, my parents' age and, you know, and, or maybe even mm-hmm. grandparents' age. And um, that, that somehow that as a, I'm going to call myself a light worker now, but of course I didn't know it then. <laughs> but mm-hmm. as a light worker, mm-hmm. I was able to seize the moment and exchange mm-hmm. love. You know, and, and I think that that's the truth. You know, I think when you're, mm-hmm. you can be in that truth, that that is, you know, what life is for. And to provide that for those people who perhaps didn't even know that they needed that at that time, um, you know, they wouldn't put it in those terms or, and either would you at the time, but to be able to have done that, you know, in that moment, um, you know, should not I be do, I didn't think about my obligations. I didn't think about, you know, our president, you know, possibly lying dead. I didn't think about his wife Mm -hmm. having been shattered. I didn't think about my parents, you know, uh, responsibility. I didn't think, you know, my responsibility toward them. I didn't think about anything negative. You know, somehow, some way, there was a blessing just like when a camera would turn on mm-hmm. and I knew that I was connecting with other people on the other side, you know, same thing with an audience. And, um, you mm-hmm. know, I guess you could call it a magical moment, um, but it's, it is a moment of love and, um, and, um, and kind of redemption, you know, just to have that experience and that's, you know, I, I want to perhaps sort of, you know, end with something that President Kennedy said. And this was from 1960. And, and he was known for talking about the new frontier, this idea of the new frontier. And I think this was probably the first time he mentioned this. And this was from, I think, his presidential nomination acceptance speech. Um, it would have been at, I guess, the Democratic Convention um, from 1960. And he said... Today, our concern must be with that future, for the world is changing. The old era is ending. The old ways will not do. It is a time, in short, for a new generation of leadership. He said new men, but I would add new women. New men and new women to cope with new problems and new opportunities. Well, he saw, he, he, he was a seer as well. He was a visionary, you know. <laughs> like so many people say, well, you know, it's almost impossible to predict the future, but a lot of people sense it, you know, and there are a lot of people that are intuiting now and they have great leadership and great credentials. Um, You know, uh, I'll, I'll just mention one more thing that has come across my, my desk and, that is, you know, I think everyone's <laughs> kind of familiar with the TED Talks. Well, now mm, TED sure. Talks have um, a new division called TED Countdown. And you can see it on mm-hmm. YouTube uh, for five days, and it's still going on. 50 notable yeah. people. Everything from, you know, what we discuss about feelings and love and self-esteem and potential, human potential, um, climate change, uh, industries, mm-hmm. politics, everything. There's 50 people, mm-hmm. 10 each day, that speak to an audience and give that information. The difference is that in the TED Talks, the speaker shares an idea. In this particular mm. approach, mm. the ideas have solutions. 
Fantastic. And they are very ambitiously going. They're uniting with yeah. various, you know, international organizations, the UN and other, you know, amazing organizations to implement, you know, corporations, oil companies, uh, uh, alternative energy companies, you know, countries, uh, <laughs> any, anyone that has, mm. you know, a, a, an idea, architects, you know, uh, how do you say, re retrofitting buildings, building new buildings in mm. a green way. Um, it, 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 all of these innovative ideas that are being implemented and then being encouraged to be, you know, be shared by more and, and be given scientific information to create a timeline so that we, the people of this planet, can reverse mm. climate change and create a livable planet. Um and what I love about you talking about that is this idea of the hope that we've at, that they're giving us this roadmap of how this can be done. So rather than saying we need to do this or we need to do that, and we can all feel very disempowered by that because we're like, well, how do we start? Where do we start? It's too big a problem. To actually have that hope, which involves how, how can we get there, I think is just really exciting because I think that speaks to what you've spoken about today about what President Kennedy represented. And if we think about Martin Luther King and we think of Bobby Kennedy and by the, you know, all of those people during that, that short time that they were around, they gave that hope. And by the end of that decade of the 60s, they were all gone. But what they planted, as you've spoken about before, um, you know, may be taking a, you know, a while to, to you know, bear fruit because it's, it, it kind of got pushed aside or pushed down or whatever we want to call it. But, you know, now might be, you know, with all the supposed, you know, lack of hope that we have for what's going on at the moment, you know, it, it might be the time for this to finally happen. Um, you know, I, I, if, if I may, I'd like to just read something from that same speech of President Kennedy because I think it speaks to what you're talking about and what we've always tried to do in this podcast thus far is to, you know, look back on the past and, and to... And, you know, think about the, the or talk about, you know, the, the fun times and, and those sorts of experiences that you kind of had in terms of the TV shows. But we shouldn't be lulled into this, you know, wanting to return to this imagined past that, you know, we, we need to move forward and, and we need to be able to reflect on what's come before to see where we can go, um, you know, in the future. And so President Kennedy said, but I tell you, the new frontier is here, whether we seek it or not. Beyond that frontier are the uncharted areas of science and space, unsolved problems of peace and war, unconquered pockets of ignorance and prejudice, unanswered questions of poverty and surplus. It would be easier to shrink back from that frontier, to look to the safe mediocrity of the past, to be lulled by good intentions and high rhetoric. But I believe the times demand new invention, new innovation, imagination, decision, I'm asking each of you to be pioneers oh. on that new frontier. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> well, his spirit certainly lives on. That's for sure. And, um, mm. and everything that he represented then, you know, um, I think, you know, we should, we should honor and forgive him for, for being human Um Mm. And uh, and know that his his intentions were were very honourable, I I believe. And I think with that, maybe we should end with a song um, by Dion, uh, who I I know Donna you knew um, back in the sixties, who spoke about not only President Kennedy but his brother Bobby, Martin Luther King, and Abraham Lincoln um, in a song called Abraham Martin and John. i 
anybody here seen my old friend John can you tell me where he's gone he freed a lot of people but I've seen the good they die young I just looked around and he's gone and so my fellow Americans Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Yes, sir.